the new record. Right, put that on, that's lovely. Oh, oh, copyright or something. Oh, watch the copy. Oh, copyright. these oh, are all. sound effects. It's a tune, though. It's that. It's what's in there. No, it's not copyright. It's those old thingy. Oh, corner. Great. Can't be copyrights on the record. Oh, all right. Well, we'll sing it then. Hello, you're listening to Copyright Waffle, the podcast that brings you a nice cup of copyright enlightenment with a slice of cake. My name's Chris Morrison. My name's Jane Secker. We're a couple of self-confessed copyright geeks and we run the website copyrightliteracy.org. We're on a mission to make learning about copyright fun, engaging and empowering. And we're your hosts for Copyright Waffle, an archive of amazing chats with copyright experts and interesting people whose lives have been touched by copyright. And what you heard at the beginning of the podcast were the unmistakable voices of the Beatles from the remarkable archive of our guest, uh, top Beatles historian Mark Lewison. And those were outtakes from the 1965 Christmas fan club special recording that they did. This is an amazing podcast we've done. I have to say, when you first suggested it, this is way more your area than it is mine. Um, We went along to hear Mark speak at the Faversham Literary Festival and I must say that that was the start for me of being hooked. When I heard Mark talk in detail about the Beatles, but particularly about the way he did his research, he was talking um, about newspapers and how he used newspapers to check things that people had told him. He talked a lot about aspects of information literacy. I said, absolutely, we have to go and chat to this this person. Yes, absolutely. For those who don't know Mark Lewison, he is the leading authority on all things Beatles. He's author of a number of books, such as The Beatles Live, The Complete Beatles Recording Sessions, one that I leafed through multiple times during my teenage years. The Complete Beatles Chronicle, he was a major contributor to the 1995 Beatles Anthology Project. And most recently, he embarked on a project to create the definitive three-volume history of the Beatles called All These Years, the first instalment of which Tune In was published in 2013. And we heard him speak about that at the the Faversham Literary Festival. And it's just an incredible book, uh, an incredible story, the way he tells it, the detail. It's brilliant. And it is fair to say you were lost for words at points. Neither of us really wanted the conversation to end. We met Mark in person and we chatted to him for around three hours, I think. It was nearly the best part of three hours. Yeah. 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 And as a result, we've got a lot of content here. So we've actually split this into two episodes. And the first episode, which you're going to hear now, begins with us arriving at Mark's archive. It covers the Beatles' introduction to copyright when they first became aware of it talking about their publishing, the deal that they did with Dick James, the creation of Northern Songs, and some amazing background about the music business in the 1960s, how all of the contractual things worked, the the way that A&R people operated and songwriting credits. Um, We also talked a bit about the Beatles Mm. being accused of infringing copyright, ripping other people's work off, as well as 
people infringing on theirs or creating parody versions of their songs. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. So shall we join the chat where we arrive and talk to Mark a bit about his preferences for indoor footwear and whether he has an official title? Copyright Waffle, all right. Don't really have any coat hooks, but I'll find. Oh, no, that's fine, that's fine, I'll yeah. I'll find places. Yeah, okay. yeah, wow, this is the Yeah, part of it. You've got some of it in storage elsewhere <coughs> as well then? No, there's more on an upper level. Oh my goodness. Wow. Um, How long have you been in here then? Um, two and a half years. Right. Right. Yeah. It's like being in a proper Thank archive. You very much. It's got that archive smell about it, hasn't Good. it? It has. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm always slightly trepidatious to even <laughs> kind of walk into it, but uh, yes. Yeah. Thank wow, you so much. Building as well. It's a very special place, yes. I don't actually know the precise history of it, but uh, I think in parts it's 17th century. Is it? Yeah. Mm. Is it shoes on or shoes off? Um, Happy to take them off. Shoes off, actually. Yeah, oh, right. no worries. Yeah. I have them on, but I, these are what I call indoor shoes. They are indeed, yes. Uh, right. Yeah. Where, okay. are, we, where well, are we going? Are you the, gonna, yeah. I only have, there's, there's one table and I've got some chairs around it and that, that's the only place we can sit. Okay, no, that's fine. So, do you have an official title, number one Beatles brain? Do you, do you eschew all of that kind of stuff? I eschew it. Okay. Um, th there isn't a title. I mean, who, who, could, be, who could bestow such a title? <laughs> um, no, there isn't one and that's fine. Okay, that's fine. great. But, um, I mean, I've always been a, a Beatles fan for as long as I can remember. Mm. Um, been a keen fan of your books and, and, and reading as much as I can about them. Um, our podcast, as you know, is about copyright uh, yeah. and about how copyright intersects with people's lives. So the place we wanted to start, really, is the, the Beatles then and copyright. So... Um, Reading some of the interviews, uh, the interview you did with Paul McCartney and other things you've picked up in your book, um, there are some comments about copyright, the deals they did, how they finally, when mm. they first started understanding what the implications were yes. for them as songwriters <clears throat> and performers. So can you tell us a bit about when the Beatles first became aware of copyright and publishing? Yeah, the, f the first time that they any of them signed a, a copyrighted a document regarding copyright was in Germany in 1961. Mm. They were over there, the Beatles were there to play a season at the Top Ten Club, which ended up being for three months. And during the course of that, they were seen by a German musical arranger, conductor, composer called Bert Kampford. And Bert wanted to record them. Actually, he primarily wanted to record a singer called Tony Sheridan. But on stage in the club, the Beatles were his backing group. They had their own acts, their own set, and they backed Tony. And because Tony would need backing on record, it was the Beatles were invited to the studio as well. Uh, and while they were there, they recorded a tune that George and John had cooked up between them, an instrumental, um, which had a couple of names, but went eventually under the title of Cry for a Shadow being a bit of a pun on the Shadows instrumental group. And so at the end of uh, the session, when they were signing, they, they signed a contract with Bert Canfoot in order to allow him to release the record uh, if he wanted to. Nothing was compelling him to re release it, but they obviously did sign a document. 
and also because this was an original composition they had they were shown a publishing contract um, and uh, this was something that was entirely in German <laughs> uh, and George and John as the co-composers signed it without having any sense of what it said presumably they knew some German at that stage mostly fairly ribald things <laughs> they would have known a little bit of German from being in the club they used to know every every night at 10 o'clock on in the red light district um, that's not quite strictly right but in the area where they were playing the Raper Barn mm. uh, you had to leave the clubs if you were 18 year if you were younger than 18 years old mm. and the, the house lights would go up and the band would have to stop playing and someone would announce over the tannoy this thing in German about all those under 18 must leave the Ausweis Controle and uh, and they heard it every night and so they memorised it they knew that but I don't think that was of much help to them <laughs> when they were reading with regarding concept. regarding this document and so John and George just signed it and that was that and similarly they all signed the recording contract with Bert Canfer without having any knowledge of what that said either um, and that's what young artists will do um, mm. because they want to have their sound on a record but doubly compounded where a legal contract to a to a young yeah. performer and musician is something that they would maybe scan read but in their case it was doubly hard for them to understand the implications of it yeah it would it, it turns out that it was a standard contract yeah. and there would have been no varying of the terms allowed anyway mm. so it wouldn't have been it made any difference if it was english and they had read it yeah. because they would have if if they had challenged any of it which they probably wouldn't have done their challenges would have gone unheeded because these were standard terms yeah. um, in that respect however they were fortunate in that because they didn't know what they were signing they were lucky that they didn't sign away more than they did mm. but the that contract both those contracts actually did come back to trouble them later they then wished they hadn't signed them but mm. they had mm. signed them and in fact in the Beatles history they're part of the process of what goes forward a comes before B and B comes before C and they're a part of that so they needed to be there in order for everything else to happen yeah so Paul in the interview you did with him for the recording sessions uh, refers to that song and says at that point they were you know they felt that you know they didn't they weren't aware of copyright they weren't aware of publishing they just felt that songs existed in the air and they were and the publishers saw them coming um in tune in you you question that narrative and yeah yeah what, what 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 were you suggesting there well yes i don't think they were as naive as paul makes out mm. um because they're very bright young guys they obviously didn't have a sense of the way the music business worked but they were not completely ignorant because they've been looking at record labels for years and paul has often said how much they did look at labels and record labels would have certain bits of information on them uh, and that would include publisher names mm -hmm. so they would have seen these names and they probably had some sense because they mixed with other musicians who had recorded who had written mm -hmm. and they probably would have heard by now that there are there's a thing the copyright in the song mm -hmm. is different from the copyright in the recording yeah. I can't believe they were completely unaware of that um, and also they looked at the music papers quite thoroughly and in those days publishing was such a a key part of the music business that they would have seen lots of advertisements from publishers and lots of articles about publishers and though I'm sure they were not that familiar with it they I don't think they were completely unaware of it but that's a really interesting time isn't it where 
publishing as we would think about publishing as producing printed materials and sheet music it was at that point had started to switch around to where the recorded medium was the thing and the publishing kind of was being pulled along in the wake of that yes that that's exactly right and the Beatles accelerated that as they accelerated so much else as well Mm. Uh, but the, the history of the recording industry is that, is that it's technology driven, of course, because you know the invention of recording machines, uh, of gramophones, um, was 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 crucial to that development. But before that, song music existed as songs. It was sheets of music. It was called sheet music, and and a song would be composed, and it would go down on a piece of paper, and then it would be sold as a piece of paper to people who would play in their homes or in on bandstands or wherever it might be and that's the origin of music publishing and the record business developed secondary to that and obviously they had to have a key relationship with publishing so for there were numerous decades until the 60s when the rec- the record business was absolutely hand in hand with with the publishing business and you needed the two always for anything to happen and for example George Martin's job before he met the Beatles was to his job was it was called A&R man artist and repertoire he would find the artist and then he would go and find the repertoire well the only place to find the repertoire was by going to the music publishers so George Martin's job was to know all the publishers and to know and to be available for them to say to him George we've got a song that might suit one of your artists and George would be plied with demos, all A&R men plied with demos of songs all day long and lunches and gatherings of all kinds in order that he can be exposed to the song that he might then give to Matt Monroe or whoever it might be, one of his artists, and there were many of them who needed a song. And that was always, and then he would arrange the studio and he would speak to the musical arranger, the conductor, typically there would be an orchestra of some size, and get the singer in for a three-hour session and that and at least one other title would be recorded from start to finish in those three hours. So that was the job of George Martin. When the Beatles came along, they were they changed that completely because they didn't need him to find a song and they didn't need him to bring in other players. They were a self-contained unit. Here's the song, we'll play it, you record it. So that, that threw everything on its head right there. I mean, there were other, obviously other acts before the Beatles, but even in the sense of Cliff Richard and the Shadows, Nori Paramore, their A&R man, would find them the songs. And, and Nori would say to Cliff, I think this one will suit you. And Cliff would listen to it and go, if you think so, OK. And he'd record it. And, but the Beatles came in and said, this is the song we're going to do. And obviously that required flexibility on the part of their A&R man. And in George Martin, they had the most flexible man imaginable because he was willing to listen to anything that worked. It was an amazing combination of those characters. George did try to get them to perform um, How Do You Do It, didn't he, with the, the Mitch Murray song, and they yes. tried it, and uh, yeah. it didn't really work out. Although it kind of did work out, didn't it? Because they, they arranged it and performed it. They said, actually, we don't want that. And they yeah. gave it to Jerry and the Pacemakers, who yeah. had the hit. It ended up being a happy story. Um, <laughs> both Jerry, uh, Jerry took it to number one. Um, but you see, that is that's an example of what it was the Beatles changed because initially, when George Martin didn't believe they had any self-composed songs that were worth releasing, 
um, he said, well, this is what you will do. You go away and learn this and gave them how do you do it uh, on a disc, an acetate disc. And they went away and learned it. And they, as as they would, they rearranged it to suit their style, but they still didn't want to do it. They did do it because they had to do it, but they didn't want to do it. And for a number of reasons, which are quite convoluted, uh, George Martin was persuaded that it couldn't come out. And the Beatles always thought that it was their powers of persuasion that had won the day. But in fact, in reality, it was nothing to do with them. It was other people pressing George away from it that made it made him drop it. Really? Yeah. So senior people within EMI Parlophone? Well, or... chief among them, the composer, Mitch Murray. Okay. He didn't like what the Beatles had done to his song and um, and wouldn't sign the publishing contract uh, until he was happy with the recording because he was quite savvy. Yes. Mitch was a beginner, but he, he, he was savvy. And of course, composers and songwriters, as copyright nerds will know, have that first writer ref refusal on the first release of a recording. Once yeah. that first recording's come out, yes. then anyone else can do their cover versions yes. and it has to be licensed. Especially as in his case, he hadn't yet signed the publishing contract. Right. Mm. So it was an unpublished song and no one could do anything with it. Very few writers had that sense to, to, to keep rights back uh, while, they, while, it was, while they were within their control, but he did. Because there's a tendency to think that back in that time, everything was the Wild West and that almost, you know, there, there were no business rights restrictions on what happened. But clearly not the case at all. I mean, no. maybe people don't think that. But in my mind, I think, well, you know, things happened and it was almost nobody had control over it. But clearly that was happening. It was a business. It was a business that had been set up for, for many years, but actually it was shifting at that time. Yeah, it wasn't really the Wild West at all. It was no. all done very procedurally. Okay. And um, amongst, you know, as a, as, a, as a part of what I do is to uncover as many documents mm. as I can that are original to the period. And I've seen great screeds of correspondence between record companies and music publishers and music publishers and broadcasters. And they were all in the game together. Mm. And it was all quite formal and civilised. Um, ultimately, the, at the end of the day... Um, those who wrote the songs, unless the songs were especially successful, would derive quite little income from them um, because there were so many other people taking their cut. Uh, so uh, maybe I'm thinking more about what was happening in America and particularly with uh, black musicians and what was oh, happening well. there, which is a whole different scene. So the, at that time, the publishing in the UK was operating according to a different it, it was a principles. bit more of an old gents game in the UK. Yeah. In the US, um, it was more like the Wild West. I mean, that was a, that's an incredibly interesting period of popular music development, mm. is that period of the first few years of rock and roll, coming out of rhythm and blues and jazz and all of those things. Mm. Because whereas in Britain we had a great many record companies, but the market was completely dominated by two, and and... Decca and EMI who had 80% of the business and the other 20% was in the hands of not many other companies either so a handful of companies really had more than 90%. In America although there were big companies Columbia and RCA Victor and so on there was also this incredible um, number of independent record companies that were just based in towns and cities all over the United States um, and which had picked up distribution wherever they could and got airplay somehow or other on commercial stations, uh, often using payola. 
and and that and the, the the business was full of incredible characters, dangerous characters, likable characters, um, very dodgy characters, very honest characters, very dishonest characters, and that was much more wild than the British scene, which was which was because it's a smaller country, and particularly London centric, um, it didn't have any of that really. And one of the things that happened in that world was people ending up on the credits of the song yeah. that clearly had tangential, if any, real involvement in the writing of it. Yeah, that was part of the payola process, was yeah. that um, someone, if they, you know, are, it, as an incentive to play the record, well, we'll put your name down as co-composer, you'll get half the copyright proceeds from yeah. it. Yeah. And that would be really tough on the man or woman who had written the song in the first place, who would find a, something they'd solely created, having, you know, having to surrender a share, not only in the credit, but in the revenue. And that was that was pretty commonplace, and it was commonplace here, in a certain way. Um, record producers A and R men um, would uh, quite often the unscrupulous ones would insert their name as composer, or they would write a song quite legitimately, but make sure that an artist recorded it, mm -hmm. and the artist had no choice but to record it, and then that would end up on the B side, mm. um, and because of the way that mechanical royalties were calculated, the composer of the B-side would earn as much from record sales as the composer of the A-side. So um, unfortunately, that, that was quite rife as well. And George Martin, he, he, he was one of the few who didn't do that, although he did have a few things going on because it, you, you kind of, everyone, they these producers weren't on um, percentages of record sales right. so they would find some other way of getting a percentage and that was one of the ways of doing it and George Martin did it a bit but he had colleagues who did it a lot more mm. So in terms of writing credits that's one of the most well-known parts of the Beatles story isn't it the ordering yeah. of Lennon McCartney yeah. McCartney mm -hmm. Lennon um, I noticed actually an inconsistency rereading your interview with Paul his memory is that he wrote uh, Cry for a Shadow with George uh, that's what it says in the interview anyway but it Does says it? Uh, it, I've got it here we can have a look at it if you like but, um, the, the, the thing I wanted to, in that case the, the, the contention was well actually George wrote the guitar solo therefore he's not he's not a writer of it um, but the, yes. I, I guess the question is at that time you know, that borderline between composer and performer was breaking down because these were created in a band context so do you want to tell us a bit about that whole credit thing how that developed over time yes mm. uh i know what you're talking about you're talking about a song called in spite of all the danger ah, i am misremembering yeah um, which was at that time uh, when i interviewed paul i hadn't heard it but i knew he had the recording of the quarrymen uh making it in 1958 um and I, at that point i didn't even think i would ever get to hear it but now it's it's everywhere thankfully um, yeah, that went down as well. Lennon, John Lennon, um, okay, I'll, I'll trace this right back, but I'll try to be brief. One of the very many remarkable things about Lennon and McCartney's meeting is that Paul, at the age of 14, had started to compose music, um, and John, at the age of 15, had started to write songs. Uh, they both had songs. John had a song called Hello, Little Girl. And Paul had a song called I Lost My Little Girl. Funnily enough, both had Little Girl in the titles. And they were doing this 
themselves without reference to anybody else uh, and they didn't necessarily announce it very much because it's just like you know you go to school and say I wrote a song oh yeah yeah well I you know I, I make model planes you know <laughs> or whatever it might be um, but when they met they are they got along very well and I don't know exactly what the interlude was but quite soon afterwards when they were talking each revealed to the other that they had written a song and, and oh you've written a song oh, I've written a song and so they started to write songs together and that's a miracle in itself right there there were so few kids writing songs anywhere in the UK uh, in the city of Liverpool there weren't wouldn't have been many 14 and 15 year olds doing it they were both in the same part of the city really they were just a couple of miles apart so uh, that was remarkable and they started to write songs and they hit upon this idea of, of writing another Lennon and McCartney original on every page uh, and that was based on Rogers and Hammerstein uh -huh. because you would get two names on a great piece of music would often have two names Lerner and Lowe, Rogers and Harp, Rogers and Hammerstein and so the, Lennon and McCartney was mm. their version of that um, and they stopped writing it didn't mean they had to write everything together but it meant that whatever they wrote they would put both their names on it um, they they stopped writing songs for a while but when they resumed in 62 they resumed that arrangement and then when they've got a record coming out and they're going to be signing their first publishing contract they had a meeting in what was Brian Epstein's uh, apartment or flat really in Faulkner Street in Liverpool where John was living with his wife at that time Cynthia and John Paul and Brian had a meeting to discuss this thing because the Beatles have got a contract as a group but now there's another contract that exists on the side which is for two of them only Lennon and McCartney and they decided that they would formalize that agreement of both their names being on everything they did um, and by the look of it the best I can make it out is that they agreed that they would alternate the credit from McCartney Lennon to Lennon and McCartney and McCartney Lennon to Lennon and McCartney why I don't know it's a bit mad but they did that and the first song ended up being through mistakes Lennon McCartney it was meant to be McCartney Lennon so they switched it to the next one that was McCartney Lennon and if you trace the publishing credit on the composer credit on 1963 records it keeps fluctuating mm. and then from the second half of the year particularly the autumn onwards it becomes fixed as Lennon McCartney Paul maintains that that is the result of the holiday that John took with Brian Epstein the Beatles manager um, but I'm not he's entitled to his point of view I'm not too sure that the facts back that up because they continue to be McCartney Lennon and Lennon McCartney switching but quite a few months after that right and it eventually is by the autumn that it becomes Lennon and McCartney was it just possibly as simple as alphabetical, alphabetical. <laughs> <laughs> well Paul says it's because Paul also says it's because John shouted louder and because mm. it's my name first, right? Because he did have that kind of dominance within their mm. own two-way friendship. Mm. Um, but it does it rolls off the tongue better, and it is mm. alphabetical, which means it's kind of not biased. Mm. Whereas if it's McCartney Lennon, then it's clearly a decision. Lennon McCartney being alphabetical takes mm. that out of the equation. It's just alphabetical. Much like Morrison Secker, really. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> we, we had this dispute at great length it wasn't we a dispute were, it was a conversation well, wasn't it? yeah oh. when, how we were going to credit joint authored work between us um and whose name should go first and yeah. 
we you know we feel it is a work of joint authorship everything we do we know yes. that one of us does certain things better slightly than the other but rather than have that debate every time and it's different in, you, in you were quite drawn by this idea of it, it being like <laughs> a Lennon and McCartney style yeah. thing but well, you would be wouldn't you <laughs> I, I, I might be influenced mm. but the I, for academia it's a it's a big issue because the person who comes first their name's there mm. and you often have this with multiple authored works you have this ordering of the names which mm. is quite a sort of outdated well no it's, it's still a strong convention it is. and there's there's work to be done to, to change that and you've got these different taxonomies of what contribution people made yeah. to the thing um, because they're not all authors and certainly yeah. on a scientific paper they're not all the authors they're people working on a project yes and i guess the, the same principle really does might do well to apply to pop music because that issue that you've created clearly created divisions within the Beatles as a unit and we've got other bands that have come afterwards that have said well we'll share you know we know that you know Coldplay for example Chris Martin is the sort of primary songwriter but he he I think as I understand it accepts Cold, those songs wouldn't exist in the way they exist they wouldn't be as popular he wouldn't enjoy what he does as much if he didn't have the rest of the band so they say right let's split it yes I mean is that something that the Beatles ever considered were there was it George saying, hang on, or, or even Ringo saying, hang on, shouldn't we have a slice of this pie? Paul uh, has a, a memory of walking with John, funnily enough, near to the place where they met in Walton in South Liverpool, where they decided that they would exclude George. I'm not even sure that Ringo was part of the band yet, um, or the group as they were, but, um, but you know, let's just keep it as Lennon and McCartney, let's not extend it to a third person. And George wasn't much contributing anyway to the songs. But what would happen, of course, is that because the studio was like a workshop and because they would be taking songs in that hadn't ever been recorded by anybody before because they'd just written them, it was only in the act of, of quickly working out parts that things would change and that George and Ringo did both make a contribution in many instances to the song. Not everyone, um, but to many of them and it very quickly became lost of who contributed what that line was my idea or that the way we end it that I thought of that yeah. that never got written down and it tends not to be on the tapes because they would switch tapes off between takes so you don't get to hear a lot of the dialogue in the studio there's some but not a lot so um, in later years I think probably even at the time um, George and Ringo felt that, well you know we helped but we didn't get our name on it and that meant they didn't get a share of the revenue and within the Beatles there was um, the Beatles as a collective group split everything four ways and their collective income was quite significant because of their recordings selling so well and because of their concert revenue so there was a lot of projects that happened their films and so on that, that were split four ways but Lennon and McCartney had the music publishing income as well George had a dribble of that and Ringo had half a dribble. Um, but Lennon and McCartney just, the money poured in. Mm -hmm. And so two of the Beatles were far, far wealthier than the other two. And um, that was just an inevitability of, of the fact that they wrote the songs. And a song like She Said, She Said, which is the song where there was a row, Paul said he didn't like the arrangement. As I understand it, there may have been a, some division between the band because 
they were taking acid and Paul wasn't doing that at that mm. point. So they mm. finished this kind of proto-psychedelic proto rock track and George was quite heavily involved in that. I mean, yeah. do you sense that there was a, a falling out over that or something? Because George was also quite... Uh, he felt his, his, his songwriting wasn't really getting recognised or having a gap to yeah. put his thing in there wasn't it there's a lot of stories uh that one could talk about and just in the things that you said mm. um i they, they did argue the beatles but they 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 got on better than any band ever i would say i mean the remarkable chemistry between them all they were always for the common purpose it always all for one and one for all um and and as we see from the Get Back films that Peter Jackson made, the Beatles were, whoever it was, any one of them was receptive to the ideas of others. And indeed, even to people who happened to be in the room who might have something to say and, and felt free that they could say it. Um, but they weren't going to keep adapting, adjusting the credit. Um, we don't really know what happened. We don't really know what happened at that She Said, She Said session. There are speculations and... and uh, it, it would be dangerous, I think, to put too much weight on them without anything to back them up. But um, George did feel overlooked. He was beginning to come to the, the fore more as a composer. Initially, he was some way behind Lennon and McCartney um, and didn't have, at that time, their natural ability to compose very easily. Um, and so his initial songs weren't regarded as highly as Lennon and McCartney songs. Uh, and he did also have a song or two, certainly one that we know of that was rejected by the group. So he, he, though he looked back on that period later with some resentment because he hadn't been nurtured, perhaps, um, it wasn't quite like that in reality. I mean, they were going to record an album and who's got songs and John, John will come up with this one and Paul will come up with that one. Often John and Paul would have songwriting sessions before the album sessions began out at Paul's, out of John's house or upstairs at Paul's house. George typically wasn't part of those. So it was a bit of a carve up, but I mean, it created the most phenomenal artistry and you wouldn't want to change anything looking back on it. But, but obviously there was a bit of a casualty there. And in later years, George would say that he felt disrespected to an extent. Mm -hmm. And he probably was. The get back footage is just fascinating isn't it just yeah. to see what they're like and to have expect for all you know all our lives we've been waiting to see that haven't we yeah and there it is and it's like and some people say it's boring and it's like well no that's that's just life that's what their lives were like it's and you're right there in the room and you can see those relationships and I know that everyone's talking about it online but yeah. I just I still find it I think you said even before that film was going to be released that's going to change yeah. everything yeah i knew it would any, any exposure to the beatles is educational and that is an almost eight hour exposure uh, of the closest kind we've ever had to them interacting and their creative process we see it right in front of our very eyes uh, it's all happening right there and the cameras caught it and the sound recorders caught it and yes it's breathtaking We've had nothing else like it. We've had glimpses of creative process before, but nothing else like that. So did you know it was coming? I mean, we, did you have insights and that that was going to be 
be, be uh, put together in that way? Were you involved in any way? I wasn't involved in it at all. Um, I got my name on the credit for in the part one, but I really wasn't involved in it. And um, But I knew it was coming because they announced it Mm, about three I, I can't remember exactly when about three years ago it was it was meant to happen before covid yeah or it's going to happen in late 19 late 20 but was being worked on from 18 i think 2018 i listened what i did know was that i i immersed myself in the source material that peter jackson had to use in mm. fact he had more than i listened to but i had a lot of what he had to listen to and to use and once I immersed myself in that, I knew that his telling of the story was going to completely change our view of what occurred in that month, uh, because I heard it. I heard the same thing. And uh, it was a complete revelation to me. And I knew that therefore it would be a complete revelation with whatever he did with it. But of course, what he did was something wonderful anyway. Mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful and perhaps a and source for you as well. Oh, for your massively. Work as well. Yeah. yeah. No, perhaps about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my job is to. I spend all my life really looking for little glint, little bits of knowledge that will add to what I already know, and that I can pass on to the public through my books to add to what they already know. And there is the most massive helping <laughs> of it ever. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking for li- this line or that line, and mm-hmm. there's like eight hours of footage that you can just stare at mm-hmm. and, and see so much. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done it, I've viewed it complete four times now, and I'm still seeing things fresh. But Dick James um, arrives mm-hmm. in that, doesn't he? He yeah. comes and he's got their the information about their publishing because yes. they, they've got a whole load of catalogues for them as publishers is that yes that's right yes dick james is the beatles music publisher mm. he has been since since 1962 and we ought to talk about that um but he arrives uh at the studio with a list of songs in a, a music publishing company called lawrence wright which has been up for sale music publishing catalogues frequently come up for sale um, these days they're hoovered up by pretty much just the one or two giants that exist out there but in those days there were a great many like book publishing a great many independent small independent companies that would have a catalogue of copyrights um, uh, and they would sometimes come to the market for the death of a composer or the death of the publisher or whatever it might be they would be realized for cash and could be bought by other companies and Northern Songs, which was John Lennon and Paul McCartney's publishing company, managed by Dick James, um, was in the business of looking around to see what else they could add to their catalogue because it wasn't just going to be Lennon and McCartney songs. And uh, Northern Songs, uh, under James's stewardship, bought Lawrence Wright. And what you see in the film is Dick arriving at the studio saying, You've, you are now part owner of these songs and they're looking through the songs and of course they know only a few of them mm. because they're quite arcane songs from Lawrence Wright was I believe I'm right in saying was one of the great original music publishing entities um, something about him being in Blackpool selling sheet music's in the back of my mind He's an, he was an original it wasn't he, I think I'm right in saying it wasn't even his real name I might be confusing I could quickly look it up but anyway it was a substantial catalogue and they now owned it and that's what you see on camera and and there's a delightful moment when when Paul sees that Carolina Moon is in there which was always his his uncle's 
great song at the Liverpool parties when everyone's bevied up and they're all singing songs because their exposure to music was really the old-fashioned exposure you know pianos in the parlor was how they grew up particularly Paul and so a family party always had a piano wouldn't be someone playing mp3 files would be someone <laughs> sitting at the piano usually his father yeah. Jim Mack playing the songs and that was his uncle uncle who's it uncle Ron does he say um, who sang Carolina Moon and Paul does that great impression in the moment being a great mimic that he is of his of his bevied scouse uncle doing Carolina Moon mm. <laughs> and now he owns it or a part owns it so Dick James that is a very interesting story isn't it he's um, in Rocket Man the, the Elton John biopic Stephen Graham plays quite a, a sort of grotesque version of him I, I is that really what he was like he, he comes across in that film as sort of a foul-mouthed mm. um sort of almost semi-gangster but he he I've, his son i think has objected to that um way in which he was represented mm. and said he was he was a soft-spoken old-fashioned music man but yeah can you tell us something about his his story because there was some development over the beatles wasn't there and the corporation of apple and what happened there yes um gosh okay um the, the, the portrayal of Dick James in Rocket Man is, is utterly outrageous and really disgusting. Okay. I mean, just a disgraceful thing to do. Um, whether that was Elton wanting it that way or the director or the writer, I do not know. It, it doesn't matter whose decision it was. I guess Elton could have vetoed it. Um, maybe it's an indication of Elton still being bitter about Dick James, um, but it, talk about a, dis, a distortion of history. I mean, I have a lot of problems with biopics generally, and that's one of the reasons why, because you can really distort true events. The man that we see in that film is foul-mouthed and lewd and just scurrilous. And the real Dick James was, I don't believe he ever swore, so that's number one. He wasn't foul-mouthed, he wasn't lewd. He was a respectful old gent of the music business who was born in, I think, 1920, if I'm getting my facts right from memory, uh, in the East End of London to immigrant parents uh, from Poland, Russia, Jewish, um, real name Isaac Vapnik, uh, had quite a nice singing voice. Everyone said, you should go on the stage. This was the 1930s. He, he, he was, a, as a young man, he started a career as a singer and did pretty well. I mean, there's a lot of people out there singing and he got himself recorded. He had a big hit in America, which probably profited him by no more than a shilling or two. Um, he uh, was on television. He had his own radio show on Radio Luxembourg. He was established. He toured. He did one night stands and charity shows and all of that, all the things you would do. But the business was changing. And he was getting older and he lost his hair and he wore a wig and his time was past. And so in the 1950s, he went into music publishing because he knew he'd spent his whole career being given songs and working hand in hand with publishers. And so he went behind the desk, left the stage and went behind the desk, um, carried on recording a bit. He had His biggest hit was Robin Hood which was the theme music of the ITV adventure serial from 1956-57. Uh, 
And um, but is that the one that Monty Python parodied with the Dennis, Dennis Moore. Moore? Dennis Moore, <laughs> Dennis Moore riding through the day. And the Lupins, yeah. yeah. Yes, okay. yes, exactly the Lupins. Um, so he had that here, and and George Martin was his record producer, his A and R man, uh, and they had a very good relationship, which is germane to the Beatles' involvement with Dick. But um, he went behind a desk. He went behind the desk of Sidney Bron. Um, quite a good independent publishing company, Tim Pan Alley, mm. you know, Charing Cross Road, Denmark Street. And then eventually by 1961, Dick decided to set up his own company with the blessing of Sidney Braun. They had a good relationship still. And uh, Sidney Braun being the father of Eleanor Braun, the actress, the comedian. I still use old fashioned terms. That might make me sound sexist. I'm not. I'm just steeped in the word actress, not actor for a woman. So that's why I still use it. Um, so he set up his own company with the intention of only using British songwriters. He wanted to promote British. Like a lot of children of immigrants, he was fiercely pro-British because Britain had given him a home. His parents a home. And he was very patriotic about Britain. And when John Lennon and Paul McCartney came along through George Martin mentioning Dick James to Brian Epstein, he ends up publishing Please Please Me and Ask Me Why. Um, it's perfect for Dick because they're young, they, they're original and they're English. And this is exactly the kind of material he's looking for. And so a, a, a relationship begins with Dick and Lennon and McCartney. And to go back to what you were saying earlier, Paul says, we thought songs were in the air and anyone could own them. Well, they had to sign a publishing agreement with Dick James for those two songs. And it was the template agreement. What's called the 10-50-50 contract. 10% sheet music, 10% of sheet music proceeds, 50% share of mechanical royalties, which includes radio airplay and 50% of proceeds that come in from any sub-publishing deals overseas. 10 -50 -50. And this contract was unchangeable by, certainly unchangeable by complete beginners, um, but also unchangeable anyway. It was the, it was the agreement that had been um, hammered out with the Songwriters Guild. So it, was, it had the approval of songwriters. They may not have profited from songs as much as they would have wanted to, but it was what you signed if you wrote a song mm. and the copyright would pass in perpetuity to the publisher and um, henceforth please please me and ask me why we're Dick James music and that's how they remain except that it's changed in the last couple of years which we might or might not come to but um, it, it was Dick James music and that was that and and John and Paul profited from every sale of sheet music and every uh, sale of a record that embodied their song and every um, airplay on radio and television every time anybody else played it because there were still orchestras and singers in ballrooms all over the country people still tended to dance in those days to live music rather than to record records so there a lot of income came from public performance of the songs through the PRS the PRS was of course a, a key part of any 
arrangement and a very good employer I would say having worked for them for 10 right. years okay <laughs> right performing rights society I mean the Beatles ended up being members of the performing rights society and they got their money from the musical copyright protection society the MCPS this is all just Britain yeah. and of course it goes over to America and they're signed through BMI and BMI is the alternative to ASCAP that yeah. had more of the the black music, the the, the the support white people's music, yeah. rather than the respectable middle class popular and serious music that yeah. ASCAP had in their repertoire. It, it's salutary to, to consider that at this time when the Beatles first break through, the business is still very much of the opinion, the whole music business, and, and not just that, but also broadcasting and musicians as well, that this new music, this this bash them out electric guitar plug in an amplifier three guitars and drums that's all a noise that's not real music <clears throat> real music is proper music mm. you know proper light classics or classics or, or properly considered songs operas and so on if you look up a book about music in the 1960s it will purely be about classical and opera it won't be about jazz it won't be about anything that came out of Tim Pan Alley all that was considered inferior or, or, or indeed trash and the Beatles were at the trashy end of the business, undoubtedly. And I'm just wondering if it's related then to the amount of money that it started to make, clearly, that there might have also been behind what changed that quite dramatically, you know? That yeah. suddenly this isn't just, you know, a, a couple of boys with a, a few guitars. It's, it's you know, it, it becomes the kind of Beatlemania that takes over the yeah. the whole world eventually. Um, well, it does. It does, but it never changed the... It, 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 it didn't change the opinion of everyone who, who still held the view that it was rubbish mm. and noise. And that, that did maintain, in the Beatles' case, it changed principally, well, for, for multiple reasons, but principally because the songs of Lennon and McCartney, it was quickly realised, lent themselves to other treatments. And it was through the recording of their songs by more established artists that older people tended to go, you know what, that's quite a good song. Right. As opposed to the Beatles, you know, guitars and drums version, there's actually a good song underneath all of that. Mm. Um, so that that was a big part of the of them attaining respectability outside of the sphere that they operated in. And as you uh, you mentioned the, um, the, the that shift in the industry from sort of Tim Pan Alley songwriters producing things, artists and repertoire, yeah. uh, people finding the repertoire and the artists, but they still saw themselves. A bit in that old mode, in, in, in again going back to the interview you did with Paul mm. about they would be writing for other people. They wanted to be a yes. songwriting team, and they thought, well, when all the fuss dies down and people won't buy our records anymore, at least we've got the songwriting thing that we can yeah fall back on. Yes, exactly. Because I mean, rock and roll had only been around a few years. It was it was the bubble that was going to burst. It was expected mm. to last five minutes. It was still going after five years, but mm. surely not forever. And um, I go back to that meeting at Brian Epstein's place in Faulkner Street in Liverpool, which is really quite a, a, a very, well, it's a very important meeting, not in the moment, but as it would come to be seen, because John and Paul decided there and then that any surplus songs they had, they could actually, Brian Epstein could find a home for them. Mm. And Dick James became a key part of that of that uh, avenue of revenue as avenue of revenue it's quite good that it's <laughs> good i should write that down um but it be, be, because 
Brian Epstein took on other acts that he was managing. He didn't mm. just manage the Beatles and they were looking for songs. They weren't songwriters necessarily and they were looking for songs. And John and Paul were writing quite freely by this point. Mm. And they they knew that oh, we, we'll do this one, but we, we probably won't do that one because they might have considered it substandard or it was simply surplus at that point. Oh, simply surplus, I'll write that down <laughs> as well. I'm on fire. <laughs> and um, so uh, at this point, Brian Epstein takes on a new contract with John and Paul. There's a contract to manage the Beatles as a group, but there's also a contract to manage John Lennon and Paul McCartney as songwriters. I did not know of the existence of that contract until I found it in a lawyer's file. Wow. And it's one of the major things for me about the early years. I put it in tune in, but almost no one has noticed it. Mm. But it is actually very instructive to what follows. Because from 63, there's a great acceleration in Lennon and McCartney songs. When the Beatles weren't number one, John Lennon and Paul McCartney were quite often number one with some other artist. And the money that flowed in from things like that was just off the scale. I saw a, a video on YouTube that I hadn't seen actually until I was looking th through things. A meeting in 1968 that was recorded with Paul and John with Dick James. Mm. And that was part of a renegotiation as I understand it at that time over the publishing yes yes that's 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 a very interesting meeting another very instructive meeting what you see in the Peter Jackson get back of Dick James's visit to Twickenham when they're out there recording or just sitting around actually that day um, is 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 not doesn't make for entirely comfortable viewing because the relationship has soured by this point uh, and an, an earlier indication of its souring is the 68 meeting that was filmed by, again, by the Beatles with their cameras, um, in which they're quite strong with Dick. It, it's, it's not an easy thing to watch. It, it makes one uncomfortable to see it. There's much more of it than you can see on YouTube. Um, and there's, there's audio of what, of what we haven't got. Oh, and uh, it's, it's, it's not very pleasant. They were they felt aggrieved by dick and they may have been they must have been frustrated that by this point he wasn't listening to them uh to the it wasn't acceding to their wishes and so they get a bit brusque with him and then what they did which was particularly unkind is they took that bit of film of them being unkind to him and they showed it to uh at an american record convention which yeah uh, you know, it makes me feel uncomfortable just thinking about it. And, you know, when people ex uh, excoriate Dick James for selling his shares in their music publishing, then this doesn't necessarily excuse that act, but it has to be seen as part of the picture of why he did it. And this was him selling those shares led to the loss of control of the catalogue that then became the case with Sony ATV further down the line yeah they, they'd lost they had never really had control of it I mean it was a 50-50 company in the first instance but the Beatles it was Dick James music having 50% uh, and it was John Lennon Paul McCartney and Brian Epstein having the other 50% that's what Northern Songs was but because this is getting quite complicated but essentially because of the extremely high taxation rates in this country in those days the vast revenue streams that were that were were damming up for Lennon and McCartney, they couldn't be released because they just would have given it all to the government in tax. So they had to find ways of realising their income. And one of the ways of doing it was to make Northern Songs 
take it public on the stock exchange. Unheard of thing for popular music songs, a pop group to have their songs on the stock exchange. You can go and buy shares in their songs. And it was laughed at derisively by the stock exchange fraternity. But uh, and after initially the song, it didn't appear to be a very successful flotation, but then it started to rise and rise and rise mm. uh, because those it was recognized that these songs are very valuable copyrights. But from the moment it went public, there were five million shares and anyone could buy shares in them and plenty of people did. And John and Paul's uh, combined shareholding was, and I should remember this, but it's all in my notes. It was significant, but it wasn't mm. control. I mean, shares were owned by everybody. Mm. Dick James also didn't own controlling share. Nobody owned a controlling share in it anymore. But when eventually he sold his stock, it was bought by Lou Grade, who then had whatever he already had from the open market, plus Dick James's and Dick James's business partner, Charles Silver, and then set out to try and acquire 51%. So Paul McCartney now says in his lyrics book, in fact, I'm going to read it to you right here. Okay. Um, this is a book that came out in late 2021, page 847. Um, Dick James sold our publishing in Northern Songs without giving us a chance to buy the company. Um, that is not wrong, but it's really not right either. So was it in some ways an innovation in terms of how as you were saying oh, yeah. it was un unheard of that pop songs would be floated yeah. on, on the on the market yeah um and even though it, it sometimes is quite um upsetting to read through the sort of rancorous all the all the arguments and the rouse of what happened afterwards because what we want to remember about the beatles is the joy that they gave yeah. us and that obviously they shared within each other but it was an innovation yes what had happened around the business it was it it, 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 it the city, the collective jaw dropped in the city when it was announced that they were going to try and float John Lennon and Paul McCartney's songwriting, songs written, but also songs to get to come until 1973. I mean, in the Get Back film, such is the broken relationship between Dick James and Paul McCartney, as we see it, and with John Lennon as well, that... Dick says, and we've got John Lennon and Paul McCartney in Northern Songs, and Paul says something like, yeah, for the moment. I forget the exact words. It's something he throws in a little remark there that is he's 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 is intended to spike Dick James, mm. and Dick unfortunately rises to the bait. What do you mean? You know, I mean it was a, an inflammatory thing for Paul to say because he had a contract with Northern Songs for another four years till February seventy three. So that his songs were going to be invest, invested in Northern whether he liked it or not, but he said it to to rile Dick and Dick took the bait um, and that is an indication of a relationship that's in mm. trouble but clearly at that time what you get from the get back documentary as well is just how in in shock they were at brian epstein's death that, that all of these things were happening the background to yeah. se severe bereavement and young people who in this pressured environment who were doing something that was equivalent to kind of going to space in terms of yeah. what they were what they were achieving culturally and they had these i mean is there an element of their disagreement with dick james being you know there's no grown-up now in charge we're having to be the grown-ups and they're kind of acting out in some way 
Well, in Dick's case in particular, with the music publisher, the Beatles had a relationship with Dick. John and Paul particularly had a relationship with Dick through Brian Epstein, the manager. Mm -hmm. Brian was the middleman. Brian, Dick will go to Brian and say, Brian, I want such and such and such a thing. Or, you know, can I do this or should I do that? And Brian would then pass it on to John and Paul. He would drop in at sessions. He would see him from time to time. He would come and he would go. They would be happy to see him and happy for him to leave. But there wasn't much of a direct relationship. And with Brian Epstein's death, there was no buffer between the two parties. And because there was resentment growing on the part of John and Paul in particular, and because Dick probably didn't like the things they were saying to him, their meetings became tense and tetchy, as opposed to Brian being there to just kind of make it all okay. Mm. So it exposed like two parts, two metal parts coming together without a rubber between <laughs> yeah, them, yes. you know? Yeah. And they just started to have friction and it was, um, and that's what you see. And I'm very glad to see, it's, it's uncomfortable viewing, but I'm glad to see it because it's so instructive. We see what their relationship was from that bit of the yeah. film. So yeah, good to have it, but, but not easy viewing. So arguably, I think unarguably, actually, had the taxation rates in this country not been so astonishingly high in the 1960s, Northern Songs would not have been floated. And, and, and John and Paul would not have, they would have always owned 50% and mm. therefore Dick James couldn't have done anything, couldn't have passed it on to anybody. Mm. He could have passed over his part of it, perhaps, but it would have had to have been by agreement with the other side anyway, I think. So it was the very fact that it was public and that people could buy shares in it that, that made it prey to take over. And that's eventually what happened. It's, so it's far too simplistic for Paul to say, this man sold our songs. Yeah. He's not wrong, and I know why he's saying it, but I mean, he also knows that there's a much bigger, more complex story behind that than he's saying. Mm. Mm. Another thing we wanted to ask about as well was Beatles songs... I, I, you, in spite of all the danger, you've corrected me. You're absolutely right, of course. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything else. Smart. Um, but Paul also references the fact that he probably ripped that off an Elvis song. I yeah. seem to remember that. And he says he won't tell you which one it is because he doesn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. And then there was the Come Together and the Chuck Berry case. So, mm. um, I mean, have you been looking at any of those accusations of copyright infringement that came out from the Beatles or vice versa, the other way around, where people had written songs that the Beatles said, hang on, you're just nicking that off us. Yeah, well, as, as to their absolute credit, the Beatles always said, John and Paul, particularly as songwriters, that we've nicked this bit from there and we've nicked that bit from here and so <laughs> on, because that's what creative people do. You'd be inspired by something you hear. Some other songwriters written a great piece of music and you think, oh, I love that. Mm. love the bass line on that or I love the harmonies on that or I love the drum pattern on that. And you work it into something you're doing, and and that is what creativity is all about. You don't, you can't just always create from a blank slate. We're all of us influenced by the things that we read, the things that we see and hear. But what you can do is you can synthesize it with your own talent and turn it out into something that is original, even though the drum pattern is inspired by that Otis Redding track, or the bassline is inspired by that Chuck Berry bassline. Chuck didn't play it, but on a Chuck Berry song. And um, and so, and the Beatles, to their credit, always said, you know, we're knickers, basically. <laughs> uh, and in the case of I Saw a Standing There, there's a bass line, which is um, another Chuck Berry song they used to do, Talking About You. And they said that in interviews. I mean, they were, they were guileless. It was wonderful how open they were. 
Um, but once or twice, this 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 magpie tendency would come back and bite them, because of course the Beatles were so successful that people knew that if they could just get a small purchase into something, they could, there's money to be made here. So John Lennon using some lines from Chuck Berry's "You Can't Catch Me" in his song "Come Together" mm. on the Beatles album "Abbey Road." It's not much really. There's really not much to it, but but he got done for it. Yeah. Uh and and lost. And George Harrison subconsciously using some a, a run of notes from the chiffons he's so fine mm -hmm. in My Sweet Lord um, ended up we, well it ended up in a very complicated and very interesting case but it, initially at least uh, he, he lost that case um, and, and, and it aggrieves me that when people talk about My Sweet Lord it's almost the first thing they say and mm -hmm override overwhelming the fact that it's such an extraordinary piece of work it's just such a brilliant song and such a brilliant recording and the fact that this thing happened to it is it should be on the side somewhere it shouldn't be in the middle of what we talk about but um people do uh, lennon and mccartney were ripped off more than any composers out there but they never went after anybody mm. um until eventually the ruttles happened in 1977-78 but that wasn't Lennon and McCartney going after them that was ATV Music who owned the Northern Songs catalogue right, by them okay. who just decided that this was uncomfortable this was uncomfortably close to our our copyrights and that yeah. we should have a share in it so what was the outcome of that because they uh, George was quite heavily involved in the Ruttles project and with Monty Python and Eric Idle and Neil yes Lewis. well again you know we come back to copyright this the Ruttles is 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 numerous copyrights isn't it there's the copyright in the creation of the film all you need is cash which yeah. was you know in the, in the writing of it which was Eric Idle's copyright right. there was probably NBC's copyright in that they financed it and and therefore had a stake in mm. in its in its um, overall copyright um, but then there's the musical songs that are within it, which were composed by Neil Innes, who was a great parodist and loved the Beatles. And these songs came naturally out of his love for the Beatles. And they're great songs. And I mean, I love them. I love listening to, just to the songs. They're great songs. And they're not all, obviously, from a particular song, but some of them are. Yeah. Piggy in the Middle is I Am The Walrus. Uh, you, yeah, yeah. ATV argued that without I Am The Walrus existing, then I Am then Piggy in the Middle wouldn't exist. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of unarguable because yeah. it's it's quite clear that A has led to B. Mm. And in the end, Neil had to surrender, I believe, I'm not privy to the detail, but I think it was 50% of the mm. copyright. Not Gosh. all of it, wow. but 50% of the copyright. And I was lucky enough to meet him. He, he came in when I was working at PRS, came in to see me. I got him to <laughs> sign my... Uh, a uh, copy of uh, Shangri-La was the, the oh. sort of re-release anthology yes. um, pastiche thing and so I got him to sign that he was he wasn't that happy at the time though because he was looking to get his royalties out of his publisher which is why he came to see me right. but it was uh, yeah that was a sort of fanboy moment but he was yeah. he was uh, and, and he himself then went and sued uh, Oasis yes. for the 
Yes. Ask me to be an idiot. Yes. Um, whatever. What was the song? I can't remember. Was um, it? Do, 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 do. Yeah, that one. Um, yes, Free I can't to remember. be whatever I... Yes. Anyway, yes. that one. Yeah, yeah that, that Oasis track, yeah. yeah. Which we're going to remember when we finish. <laughs> of course. Free to be whatever I... Whatever I choose and I'll sing the blues if I Um, yeah, how sweet to be an idiot. So he ended up with the fifty percent or some share anyway in that Oasis song that he really didn't have anything to do with. But on the other hand, lost fifty percent of songs that he had written, which must have been very painful. Chris, do you want to play something? I think on that note, I was just going to play something that we prepared in advance for this. We we have a theme tune for our podcast, which I think you've heard. Yes, yeah. yes, I have. Yes, yeah, it's your composition, written, written by Chris. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. He's, yeah. He's largely, I I think I should take some of the the, the credit oh, lines because I tend credit. to like give you a brief and inspire you. Of and, course, you know. You're, are you are you my John? My George or my Ringo? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm really my... not quite sure. Uh, but um, yeah, do you okay. want to? Thanks to Jason, my friend who has a Hofner. It's not a violin bass, it is a, um, it's a different one. And to Dan, my friend who's got a Rickenbacker. It's, it's not a 325 Capri, right. it is a 360. Uh, okay. But nonetheless, they, they came to my aid when yes. I asked them. Yes. So is that published, that piece of music? Uh, no, no, not yet. I mean, I, is it an original work? Is it is it a pastiche? Yeah. Is it, it's a pastiche. It but is, is it, is a, it defensible very... under Section 30A of the Copyright Designs and well, Patents Act? So that, yeah. yeah. An now we have question. an exception for parody, uh, caricature and pastiche. Which hasn't existed in our law since uh, 2014 it came in. There was yeah. no parody exception. So all those things that happened prior to 2014 would have all... There wouldn't have been something specifically in UK law that would have allowed that. So I'm, Arguably now it's defensible under, under yeah. that Yeah, Arguably it's an entirely it's, original work because yeah. it's got original words and yeah. an original melody line. Yes. the um, to, to go back then to the 60s... Uh, in the day, John Lennon and Paul McCartney decided, I don't know, they didn't have to sit down and have a meeting about it, but they just decided that they didn't want their songs to be heavily pastiched. Uh, and there were quite a lot of pastiche. There always had been pastiche uh, songs in the music business and uh, or answer songs, um, which were basically taking the theme of the original work and, and doing something, a twist on it in some way. Like 60 Minute Man in the 50s and there were yeah. loads of songs that yes, came up. Yes, exactly that. Exactly. And the business had always been worked that way and they agreed that they didn't, they would, they asked Dick James to, to prevent anyone doing it. 
So when Dick received, as he often did, requests to parody a Beatles song, and that they would have to be asked that the question, the copyright holder would have to be asked, mm. they always said no. Mm. So the Baron Knights, for example, had hits with uh, um, pastiches in those days, medley pastiches mm. of other pop songs that were current. No Lennon, Mon no Beatles songs. I think "I Wanna Be Your Man" was done pastiching the Stones recording, and I think "Love Me Do" may have been done. But no, all the requests for a pastiche of A Hard Day's Night or a pastiche of any mainstream Lennon and McCartney song were always denied because it was annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, there might be some money to be made, but I mean, the government, the tax member is only going to take it anyway. So <clears throat> they, 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 they kept their powder dry, yeah. basically. So our podcast has come to its end And we know you have to go You only set aside an hour for this But there's one more gift we'd like to bestow One last thing fade away we can reflect on whether parody and pastiche songs are any good or whether they're just annoying they annoy uh, you don't they, they? well yes um, <laughs> but thank you mark so much for talking to us yes uh, for taking the time uh it was all the superlatives rolled into one yeah uh, but as we said at the outset that's not all no there, no no there was so much that we got to talk about that we've actually got a second instalment of our podcast with Mark lined up for you. Yeah, where we get to look around his archive, we get to talk to him a bit more about his research process, and he shares some interesting copyright news with us. Yes, so, so, tune in. As Mark would say. Indeed. Would he say that? Or would he just call his book that? <laughs> oh, he may just call his book that, yeah. to suffice because it's copyright